Hello, and welcome to your path to success with Ruth Kearns Volman. On today's episode, I interview international human rights lawyer Lorraine Smith Van Lynn about her path to success and what drove her to found her NGO, Talawa Justice for Women, in 2021. Lorraine grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, and never imagined that she would have an international career. As a girl, she wanted to study languages, but missed the application deadline and ended up applying for law, thinking she could change once she was there. She never did. After her father died during her final year at university, Lorraine started working as a prosecutor in the magistrate's court. Her mother became a serial entrepreneur to support her and her sister through college. She says, I learned from my mum to be a risk taker. Don't just sit there and wonder how things are going to happen. If you think that something needs to change, change it. You know what I mean? Fight for what you believe in. As Lorraine continued her legal career, she became increasingly frustrated with well-intentioned systems that didn't work for victims. Her passion drove her to study international law and to speak up to find solutions that work for victims. Eventually, it led her to create Talawa, Justice for Women, an organisation that empowers women leaders and survivors of conflict and gender-based violence in the Global South. In this episode, you'll hear Lorraine tell her story in her own words. We talk about some influential moments in her life and how her anger and passion led her to find her voice and empower victims to find theirs. Enjoy the interview. Lorraine, welcome. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, you were born and raised in Jamaica. You've been judge in the magistrate's court. You've been director of the International Bar Association in The Hague. Uh, You founded your own NGO. You're an international human rights lawyer. And I'm just curious, which parts of your journey would the 10-year-old you have been the most surprised about? (laughs) That's a a really interesting question. Um, The 10-year-old me, I think, probably would be surprised that I am on the international stage because, you know, I never envisioned that I would leave Jamaica. We had a, a beautiful family. I liked traveling, but I never actually traveled until I was around 10 or 11 when I passed my exams at home. And then I went to visit family in Canada. But the idea that I would live and work on the, in the international arena, in the, in the Hague, Definitely not. So I think my 10-year-old self would say, wow, girl, you've you've gotten quite far. To even know that I would end up in places like Uganda, Kenya, and other parts of the world where there are women who look just like me, but some of them are going through really difficult circumstances, I think is something that my 10-year-old self would be really, really happy about as well. Yeah. And it's a wonderful journey. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. When did your dreams about justice start? Because that's the theme, isn't it, through your life? It is. I think even before I answer the question about justice, I would say when did the themes about what I wanted to do with my life start? It's kind of interesting. I wanted to be a linguist. So... 
I wanted to study languages because I was fascinated by languages. And so I studied Spanish in high school and I love languages so much that my mother said, if you want to do private lessons in another language, that's also fine. So she took me to private French classes as well. And I was convinced, I knew what I wanted to do. And until I got to like around the sixth form, which is like, you know, you're finished the major exams and you're about to think about what you want to do for university. And so the opportunity comes up for me to apply to university. And, you know, I've done my old levels and I'm now going to do my advanced levels and I wanted to apply to university. And so I looked at the deadline for the Faculty of Arts, which is where you would apply to study languages, Mm-hmm. And the deadline had passed. I was so devastated. I went to my guidance counselor in high school and I said to her, you know, I want to do languages and I don't know what I'll do. I, I don't want to wait another year. I had pretty good grades and I, I didn't want to wait for another year. And she said, OK, why don't you apply to the faculty of law and then ask them to transfer your application <laughs> to arts? Now, there were persons in my class who were adamant. They wanted to be lawyers. You know, maybe a parent was a lawyer, whatever. I had no interest in law. I wanted to do languages. But that sounded like a pretty good idea at the time. So I filled out my application and I remember it to this day. All around it in bold with a highlighted marker, I put, please transfer to arts. Please transfer to arts. They never did. And here I am today. (laughs) So it's like, sounds like it's destiny or something. I think so. I think so. And then when I I finished um, university, you know, having studied different areas of law, I thought, well, you know, all of this sounds great. Now I need to get a job. So, you know, my colleagues wanted to to go into criminal law because that was quite exciting and it was very interesting and so on. No, I don't want to do anything with that. Because remember, my plan is I'm going to study languages. So I'll get there eventually, I think. So I don't want to do anything with criminals or anything with criminal law. But at the time we were in our final year, the university, the government had changed the fee structure and most of us had to be bonded then to government service. So I said, okay, well, you know, I want to be placed at the attorney general's chambers. And in Jamaica, the attorney general's chambers deals with more civil law related matters, even international law matters and so on. Anything non-criminal. That was my thinking. Okay. Well, it turned out I didn't get in. There was no space or I just didn't make the cut. I don't know. But then I was assigned to the parish court in Trelawney, which was quite some distance. It was a different region from where I originally was from. I'm from the, I was from the capital, Kingston. And Trelawney is like, I would call it the country, you know, the Mm -hmm. suburbs. And I said, okay, well, what am I going to do? I didn't know anybody in that area. I didn't know what I, I had no idea what I was supposed to do. So I end up as clerk of the courts. That's what you call it, which is the prosecutor in the magistrate's court. I end up being assigned to that court with absolutely no idea. I've never even been in a criminal court. I don't know anything about criminal law. That's where I ended up. So as you look back on that experience, what are you grateful for? Yeah, I'm so grateful that 
I listened to that inner voice. I listened to what I felt at the time was the leading of God in my life. I'm grateful for family who embraced me and these decisions that I didn't even understand. I'm grateful that I was able to do this even when I had quite a traumatic event happen just before all of this movement to to Trelawney and so on. Because my dad passed away suddenly while I was in my final year of law school. Mm. Um, He had a heart attack and he was quite young. I mean, now when I see myself over that age, I realize how young he was. He was like 39, 40. And we are a really close-knit small family. I just have one sister, my mom and my dad. And we were we were really, really close. I remember sending him cards during my time at law school because under the Jamaican system, you study law. A part of your studies is in Barbados. That's in another Caribbean country. And you study a part in Jamaica. So I had not been away from my family for that long. So I would send cards. I would send letters. My mom would write me these amazing letters. I think I still have some of them, you know, handwritten letters, not like emails. So we were really close. And then he had a heart attack. And when he had the first heart attack, I didn't know that he had had it because it was around my exams. And so they didn't want to tell me. But I sensed that something was wrong. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was a bit of a turning point from kind of going with the flow of what life had presented or didn't present to maybe fighting some of the doors that were closing or taking a stand for things. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. And not being afraid because I really had a very protected childhood. You know, we were a small family of four, as I said. And so to launch out, to go into this place by myself, to figure things out Mm -hmm. was new, but I had to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And somehow doing that helped me to kind of look back over my, not just my life, but the life of my parents. So I looked back on Mm -hmm. my dad, but I really want to say that one of the persons who inspires me the most and still does is my mom. Mm -hmm. Because Just looking back at her journey also made me know that, wait a second, you have something in you to be a risk taker. Because this woman was, and still is, a risk taker. You know, I said my dad died at 39, 40. They met when she was 17 or 15, something like that. They were teenagers who fell in love. My mom had me at 17. Mm -hmm. They were together. My dad was 19 at the time. She's 17. You know, that for them was something. And then they got married and they were together all their lives until he passed. But my mom looked at our trajectory as children through school, looked at our report cards, you know, with our grades. And she said, these children are going to be something. I don't know what. She had not gone beyond the first level of school. She has no university education. And she was working as a receptionist with a dentist. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, this salary that I'm getting, it's not going to be enough. Because when I look at the grades of my children, they're going to want to go to university and I won't be able to afford it. So what does she do? 
what people are calling today a side hustle. This amazing woman opens two businesses, I don't know how, Mm -hmm. and basically at 4 a.m. would get up and go to a restaurant that she has started. And so when I was in university, I didn't worry about things. And I learned from my mom to be a risk taker. Don't just sit there and wonder how things are going to happen. Make it happen. Mm -hmm. If you think that something needs to change, change it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Fight for what you believe in. And that, I think the combination of what I learned from her and what I saw from the experience with my dad, those things have really shaped the journey that I'm on now. Mm, Yeah. I'm curious, tell me what was it like to be a judge in the criminal court in Jamaica? Yeah. I became a magistrate because the chief justice himself at that time, Justice Lensley Wolf, he asked me to join the you know, he asked me, he said, do you want to come on the bench? And it was quite an interesting experience because I felt at home as a judge. I felt like I I was comfortable in that role of balancing rights, of balancing the rights and the, of victims with the rights of the accused. And I actually went on the bench after I had done my master's in international human rights law. So I had that sense of the international norms and standards that every country should apply, every practitioner in law should apply in adjudicating. You know, I knew what due process rights were. Mm -hmm. I knew what international standards were, but I also knew what the rights of victims were. So it helped me to balance things. I actually thought also as a prosecutor, it gave me a very good perspective of what to look for in a case. So I knew what to expect. So that's the technical side. So I I knew that, okay, I felt comfortable in the role. The side that was very difficult was it's lonely. Mm -hmm. Being a judge is really lonely. Mm -hmm. Remember, I was coming from the prosecution service. A lot of my colleagues, some of them would now appear before me. Okay. So you have to know distance yourself because you have to fairly adjudicate. So they may come and you have to step, you know, you have to see it as this, you're doing your job. Some of the former defense counsel were colleagues in law school, but we are no longer, when we're in the courtroom, we're not on the same level. You know, I, I am the final authority, the final voice. So the loneliness was there. The second is something that I guess you will always have. You know the law, but not all cases can be decided based on the law. And I want to to clarify what I mean by that. There are some cases that are what I call borderline. Like you might have a case with a young person who has their life ahead of them. And if you follow the law, the technical aspect of the law, they deserve perhaps to be sentenced in a particular way for the crime. But if you sentence them according to the law for what they've done, they may not have a life after that because they have a criminal record. Mm. Thankfully, there are legal provisions that allow you to use your discretion to say it's the same facts as another case, but you 
find mitigating factors that help you to decide this case differently, to give one person a chance because they may not have a future if you put, if you go by the strict letter of the law. Maybe this young man, he has had very bad influences. You know what? Instead of sentencing you to prison, I'm going to put you in a restorative justice program Mm -hmm. that allows you to go and do some community service work at a school. Mm -hmm. And it helps him to kind of get back on the right track. Mm -hmm. And that is, for me, something that was a very valuable experience, that there are multiple ways. And you'll see that coming back in my leadership journey Mm -hmm. when I like formal justice accountability systems like the International Criminal Court. But I also see the value of transitional justice Mm -hmm. for countries emerging from periods of conflict. Mm -hmm. It's not always that formal system, bringing the accusers before the court, sending them to prison. Does that always solve the dilemma of the issues that have led to the breaches? Mm -hmm. Not always. So that's what I got from my experience as a a judge. But it's not easy. Mm. It's not simple. No. So tell me a bit more about, sounds like this was a kind of the birthplace of something here when you started to see the complexities of balancing, like you say, the, the legal systems and processes with something more transitional or restorative. Where did that take you next on your journey? It's kind of interesting because my journey with understanding different legal systems has not been you know, kind of a straight, direct trajectory. The the experience as a magistrate, as I said, came after studying international human rights law. Mm-hmm. And how I got into studying international human rights law tells me that I started to have periods of doubt, even as a prosecutor, about the efficacy of a formal criminal justice system alone. Mm -hmm. So as a prosecutor, I saw too many examples of cases thrown out because of legal technicalities or situations where victims were not, you know, treated respectfully. Mm -hmm. And it frustrated me. It frustrated me terribly. You know, I had colleagues, and I'm not saying all of my male colleagues were like that, but I remember a particular instance where I wasn't in court. I just finished in in court and I was heading back to the office. I heard somebody come out of one of the courtrooms and she slammed the door. So she was crying and I said, "Um, excuse me, what's the problem? You know, she said, I'm tired of this. I'm so tired of this. I said, what what is it? Come. So I took her into the court's office at the time, asked the court staff just for some privacy so I could speak to her. And she was the victim in a rape case where she was actually abducted and raped at gunpoint. So the matter had been before the court for several years. With these matters, You know, there is so much delay sometimes in the justice system. The cases are called up over and over again. There are several cases on the list. The defense counsel may have other cases in other courts. He's not available. Some some of the judges may just 
fix a new date, a new date, a new date. And that complainant, she said to me, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back. I said to her, why? What tell me? And she said, you know, I've been coming. I lost my job, the job I had, because I had to keep coming to court all the time because the court was setting dates without consulting the victim. So the prosecutor would agree to a date, you know, a new date. Nobody asked her whether that date was convenient for her. And if she doesn't turn up, the case cannot go on, you know, or the, the judges can actually, they have the power to summon her because in court, there is a process that they call, you are bound over to mm -hmm. come to the next court date. Mm -hmm. If you are bound over and you do not appear, a judge can issue a warrant of arrest to have the police actually bring you to court. Witnesses know that. But when I spoke to the lady, she said, I have been coming. And there are times when the lawyer doesn't come. There are times when other cases are on the list and they put off my, I've lost my job. I now have a new job. I just got the job. I do not want to have to tell my employer what is happening because I don't want that stigma. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to be in the place and people know that I was raped. I just want to live a normal life. Mm -hmm. So I have a job and I want to get on with my life, she said. I said to her, if I go back in with you and I speak to my colleague who is a prosecutor and I tell him what you said and then a date is agreed that is a firm date. Would that help? Would that make a difference? She says, I don't know. She was really frustrated. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I talked to her and I convinced her to do that. And we went back inside and I spoke to my colleague and I explained what was happening. Right. And I can only say, I, I don't know whether on the next date, the, the case actually was heard. I don't know. But it made me aware of how difficult it is. When you're a prosecutor, you sometimes, there are some prosecutors who may not see the victims as, or the witnesses as people, meaning they have a life, they have children they have to pick up from school, they have jobs, and they may not want to tell everybody at their workplace that, hey, I'm a rape victim and I need to go to court. But the court system it, the formal justice system doesn't always accommodate them. Mm. So with that, and another case that I saw in my country where another, where a judge sent a female victim of, of rape to prison overnight for contempt of court because she was not speaking loudly enough while giving her testimony. Oh. I was so upset. I was so upset that I said, and I have to say there was public outrage. All gender and women's rights activists spoke out against it. This girl was a young girl. She was from the, the country, very rural community, had never come into the city, did not even know what a courtroom looked like, as most people don't. Hmm. She is talking. She's afraid. The accused man is in the dock. We don't have them in some separate place. They are there. She can see him. And she is speaking quietly. That's her normal tone. Yeah. 
and she is vilified and charged with contempt and sent to our prison where there are women convicts in that prison and you send a survivor. It was, it was terrible. And those incidents impacted me so much that I asked myself, are there international obligations that Jamaica are bound by concerning how victims of crime are to be treated? And I started to do research and then the opportunity came for, you know, there was a scholarship program available. I applied and I I got it. I literally sat down for my application. I wrote in my anger. I just wrote in, in, in handwritten application, you know, that there has to be something that binds the Jamaican government, that binds prosecutors to standards in how to deal with victims who have suffered violence. I looked it up. I looked at the UN basic principles for victims of crime. I I looked at all of these documents and I said, I'm going to study this. I want to find out about this and then come back. Hmm. So my journey actually started, I think, there. there. The seed was there. And then I went on the bench and I saw more and I saw it from a different perspective. Mm. So let me just slow you down. It's an amazing story. I want to ask you about the anger because one thing that came to mind when you started talking about writing out in your anger, this application for the scholarship, you know, anger is an emotion that often we vilify. It's negative, especially for women. It's, It's not something which is often welcome or we think it's not welcome and what I hear is that you were able to use it productively to move things forward yeah and I'm curious for you how you have learned you're very articulate woman obviously very educated how you've used your emotion and your voice to move things which seem immovable to move them forward and it's a really good question because it's only listening to your question that I now realize that it's that very anger that drove me to start Talawa because my anger was birthed out of a sense of helplessness. Like I felt like systems have been stacked against the victims and I, I felt frustrated because as a prosecutor, you are supposed to, you know, you're, you are required to apply the law in some ways. As a judge, you are as well. But what do you do with that, what I call anger, but which is a mix of frustration and passion? It's like all of them are mixed together. Mm. And what I can say, how I've used that is, It has been that sort of driver that has made me say, I don't just accept things as they are. If they are as they are, I might be one person, but I can still do something to change that. I can still do something. It might not appear to be much to others. I don't know, but I have been able to use my voice to speak out, I think, in in context where I feel like change is needed. And I've seen that happen. I found my voice because I feel like fairness 
as a concept is something that is relevant, whether you're talking about the rights of victims or the rights of accused persons. The justice system has to deal with persons fairly. And I found also that I I have a strong voice when it comes to systems. I, I feel too many times that there are systems that don't work, but because they are in place, because this is the quote unquote system, it stays, even if it's not working for those who it should benefit. And so I use my voice to speak about systems and whether systems are working and whether you are a poor accused person who has been wrongfully accused or you've been a victim of crime, you shouldn't have to suffer because systems and processes don't work. Mm. And that often those people don't have access to the knowledge of how the system works. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for them to to navigate the system. Exactly. Exactly. They don't have, it's not just knowledge. Some of it requires resources. You know, they cannot access certain systems because they don't have the resources to be in court all day. Yeah. You know, I think there is that combination of my own frustration, um, sense of passion that drives me. But there is also, I'm also driven by a tremendous respect for for humans for for people as individuals you know when i see the survivors in uganda who i've worked with i am amazed by their passion by their power by their ability to live life the way they live it despite everything that they've gone through and i have such respect for them you know If I can use what I have studied and learned to help them, then, and I also look at it in in another way, which is very interesting for me, I am growing so much from talking to them, from from working with them, that I think it's, this is not a purely altruistic, passion-driven thing where, oh, I'm saving the world. This is also my own way of developing me as an individual. I sit at their feet to learn what it means to have resilience in the face of of horror. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much, Lorraine. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to staying in touch with you and all the very best with Talawa Justice for Women. Thank you. I love Lorraine's story. I love the way that her mother's words... If you think something needs to change, change it. Empowered her to take her anger, frustration, and even feelings of helplessness about systems that were not serving those they were intended to and turn them into action for change. I love the fact that she not only found and used her voice to speak up for justice for victims, but also to empower victims to find and use theirs based on her profound respect for their resilience and their passion. The name that Lorraine chose for her organisation reflects that. She told me that in Jamaica, Talawa means strong, capable, full of fight, full of power. There's a Jamaican expression which says, she little, but she Talawa. She is small, but she is powerful. 
If you'd like to hear her talk more about the work that she does through Talua, do go ahead and listen to the episode from March the 8th, 2022, that I published, where she talks about that part of her story. You know, there's such power in our stories, in the way we're able to take our experiences and our tough emotions to heal them where necessary and integrate them into who we are and how we step forward in the integrity of our values. You see, emotions are an integral part of being human. They show that we care. They point to the things that matter to us, especially, funnily enough, the challenging emotions. I often work with my coaching clients to help them better understand what's triggering their emotional reactions at work, say, and how they can process these emotions and move forward with integrity to honor their values. If this resonates with you and you'd like to know more about how that works or book an appointment, you can contact me via my website, yourpathtosuccess.ch. Thank you for listening and if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to hear more stories of leaders' journeys and their path to success.